Hi everyone, my name is Andrew Brilliant and I'm the Director of Operations at Workbench SC. Today I have on the show Kim Blickenstaff. Kim just retired as CEO of Tandem Diabetes, a company that's been innovating the way diabetics manage their blood sugar. I recently used or switched to using his pump about two and a half weeks ago and it has absolutely changed my life. As a diabetic of 12 years, I've never had this much control and this much consistency in my glucose levels. So without further ado, let's welcome Kim to the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. And having a last name like Brilliant must be a real burden. <laughs> it actually is. Uh, <laughs> it's a joke that I hear all too often. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I want to start off today's show by asking a question I like to ask all of, um, all of our guests, which is, how do you define or characterize the difference between an entrepreneur and a businessman? Well, an entrepreneur can see an opportunity and validate it long before it even exists, you know, like we did with your pump. Whereas a businessman is somebody that sort of, you know, manages the sales and accounting and that sort of thing of something that's routine, sort of stable, maybe manages a few crises, but they don't deal with starting from the ground up, you know, as we did at Tandem, which is um, we, we started with three engineers and we developed a business plan through market research and we built a company designed to deliver the product that we, we developed. So that's an entrepreneur. So were you involved in the founding of Tandem or did you join as CEO a bit after its, its beginning? It, it was sort of a blend. Uh, you know, a fellow that I knew, Dick Allen, who founded CVS, now, now Caremark, now, now part of CVS, his uh, granddaughter was a type one and he learned to use your old Medtronic pump and he is... He founded the uh, Mary and uh, Dick Allen Center at the Hogue Hospital for, for diabetes. And so he had invested in a couple of engineers that had some technology uh, for pumping, and they picked insulin. And Dick thought that, yeah, there's a problem here because it's so hard to use the Medtronic pump. And so he recruited me to be on the board, and I said, you know, show me your business plan. And it was a technology presentation. You know, there was no plan. So I said, Dick, you need a CEO, not a, not a board member. So I joined three engineers. And what's interesting in this a typical story, the technology they had is not what's in your pump because it didn't work. It didn't meet the needs of what we wanted to try to achieve, which was a small pump with a touchscreen and so on and so forth. So essentially, you know, I had a founder's sort of a, you know, syndrome there where, you know, the, the technology didn't really go the direction we needed to go. And we brought in new people to uh, develop it. So that was sort of the origin. I mean, I didn't found this thing. I joined, you know, a, a funded seed round is what I would say it was and developed the business plan. So the direction of the company then, would, would you say that the, the engineers were more dedicated to their tech than they were to actually improving type 1 diabetes? Or was it the other way? No, I, I'd say that's exactly right. The first thing I did was bring in a fellow that was at my last company, somebody who was experienced in healthcare market research. He came out of uh, Duke's business school, and he did all the market research on, you know, drugs and different devices and so forth. And so I said, you know, Eric, get to work, talk to type ones, let's find out what the problem is we need to solve. And so through that market research, talking to a lot of people like you who are on the Medtronic pump, because Medtronic owned the majority of the market. And uh, so we talked to our competitors' customers to find out what they wish their Medtronic folks would develop for them. 
and that's how we got our business plan. So that was kind of your customer discovery phase. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's kind of the, the main theme that I want to, I want to assign to this podcast is the social responsibility of entrepreneurship, how a startup company has so much potential to affect change in people's lives when compared to a bloated conglomerate like Medtronic. Well, that's absolutely the truth. You know, if, if you study um, Schumpeter's theory of creative destruction, he wrote this stuff back in the 50s. He said the big monopolists slow down. And it's like the jungle. The young and the hungry hyenas are going to eat the big bloated elephant. And so that's sort of the theory of why startups, you know, were successful. We talked to their customers and we were motivated because we <laughs> tried to create a business to try to meet the needs of their patients. Whereas they're rolling along with sales and renewals, and supplies, and the motivation just isn't there. Right. And they don't have enough time to really get to know the customer. They seem, the bigger you get, the more disconnected you seem to get. So how do you feel like you've been able to establish such a close relationship with the community and, and your customers? Well, you know, we were, you know, in the beginning, we did market research, obviously, you know, focus panels. We developed prototypes. We showed the, you know, new, new people the prototypes. And we iterated, and I, I think we talked to 5,000 people in that process. So we had 5,000 potential new customers when we finally brought the product out. Now, in today's social media, you know, our company does all of its training virtually. We moved this way a year ago. So I don't know how you got started on your pump two weeks ago. Was it through virtual training? Um, I, I might have just trained myself. <laughs> easy. <laughs> yeah. um, no, the pump is easy to use, guys. I, I trained myself. Um, yeah, and that's how we stay in touch. You know, we have this virtual training. The product is simple. If you were trying to switch back to a Medtronic pump, you'd have to see a nurse, go to the office, get the training. So, you know, this change in how we operate with social media, you know, our software updates to your pump are downloaded over the, over the web through a cloud. So we're, we're in this new model where you can stay in touch like we're staying in touch now. And I think there's the connectivity even goes beyond that because not only do these software updates and, and cloud implementations allow me to get better control but they allow my doctors to stay really on top of me and, and my condition yeah uh, that's one that's one of the things we saw with your old Medtronic pump you had to physically take it in connect it to a computer wait for what three months of data to download doctor had to analyze or your nurse and figure out where you were going wrong and what refinements you needed we're on the cloud now and your pump is sending your information to your caregiver. And hopefully they're like an air traffic controller. They're watching planes not collide. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole new different world. I mean, we can see you're in control. You can share with your parents if they're worried about you. You know, I'm not sure whether you live near your parents, but in this I new know. world, you know, parents, the most traumatic moment in their life is when you went off to college and now they can see how you're doing. Yeah, and that was that was absolutely huge. And and part of that is Tandem's partnership with Dexcom, which I know you worked for uh, for many years. Yeah, uh, that was another entrepreneurial idea. Uh, John Bird, who was in diagnostics and early like urine strip testing for glucose and then wow. finger sticks and so forth, he had this idea for an implantable sensor 
which didn't work. Okay. The CEO figured came from, I think Medtronic where they used night and all wire. And he right. said, well, why don't we coat this on this wire and have it be in the sub Q and you just change it out. It's less invasive. And so the whole direction of Dexcom changed. I was on the board when this all happened. Okay. And so that's how you got to a wearable sensor. The sensor's life extended from, I don't know, three days to 10 days. And then the accuracy of it has gotten better and better so that our algorithm on our pump can rely on that data to do your dosing. So that's how this whole thing sort of converged. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, that um, without good data, none, none of these systems work. Yep. You know, one of the interesting things about our company is the software algorithm people came out of UCI and USC. And guess what industry they were in? Flight control system software. Really? So they, yeah, absolutely. So they, were the, they worked for Parker Hannafin, and uh, they developed the control systems. And they taught me early on bad data, bad outcomes. Good data from the sensor, you got to close loop. So it's all about that sensor. And that was the biggest problem I had. Uh, I was a Medtronic user for about eight years. I've had diabetes for 12, but I was on there for eight years. And I, there never went a full week where I had actually good consistent data from the sensor. And it just crippled the entire system. Yep, that's the fundamental of control theory. And this dates back to, you know what the first closed loop system was? A steam engine with a pressure sensor. It goes back that far. Really? When pressure sensors got good enough to control steam output for the industrial revolution you know, the machines, you could take the operator out of the loop. And so we've known all along since the 18th century, you know, char uh, what was it, uh, Watt and the steam engine, that was his refinement. You get a good sensor, you get a good system, and you, you don't have to be in the loop. And let, let me just uh, add for, for those of our guests who, who probably don't know how pumping works, um, we're describing a closed loop system, which uses a sensor to track your blood sugar, and then have, uh, an algorithm will make autonomous decisions on how much insulin to give you based on the data fed from that sensor. So it's, it's setting up an autonomous system for delivering insulin that takes me out of the equation. Um, yep, what are, what are the dimensions to that though, is it's looking at prior data and the slope and the rate of change to predict where you're going in the future. And the future is 30 minutes out. So it's making decisions now so that you don't go low or you go high. You, you describe that, you know, you're headed up and boom, it kept you back down. Right. You know, in the range around 120, you go low, it bumps you back up. And it's, it's, it really works. Like it's, it's truly had an impact on, um, on my quality of life. Uh, I had a meeting with my doctor yesterday and she said that, uh, <laughs> She almost didn't have anything to tell me because it was working so flawlessly, which is uh, an incredible accomplishment and um, something well, that I'm excited about. Well, I'm happy for you. You know, this is how it was supposed to work. Um, as you said with Medtronic, they don't get consistent data. They're, therefore, your system can't function. You're then thrown back into the loop. And so you have human intervention. You know, when you think you can rely on it, you can't. Sleep time. Exercise screws it up. So yeah. you've got to have that good closed loop, which depends on that accurate sensor, and then then it will work. So how so how did you? I know you mentioned that a colleague of yours had a family member with diabetes. But what, what really piqued your interest about the industry and, and led you to having such a long tenure um, as an executive? Well, you know, 
I guess I proved to myself there was a real big problem here. And I knew it was going to take some years to get it developed. We had FDA challenges. We used to be in a very regulatory, regulated pathway called pre-market approval. We, we had to do clinical trials and so forth. And so the development and the regulatory approval took some time. But in the last 10 years, the FDA has sped the regulatory pathway. And we had a pipeline of products and ideas that we wanted to, to develop, you know, really more like the Apple model than the traditional Medtronic, you know, uh, you know, dumb pump kind of a model. Yeah. And it's just exciting to be a part of that whole transition and see the whole industry, you know, just sort of move towards us as, you know, we moved away from Motorola Razor phones to our smartphones today. So I love a challenge. I, I love that we can actually make lives better. I mean, that's a great business. It's a lot better than making games for kids to play, you know, on their phone. So it's just, it's part of uh, being, you know, rewarding. I love build, building organizations and, you know, it's just sort of in my blood. So going off of that, um, Diabetes is such a unique uh, illness and disease because it affects every part of your life at all times of the day. And this is a concept that's really, really difficult for people to understand who don't have the disease. So um, going off of that, how are you able to uh, inscribe a sense of passion and a sense of empathy in your team starting from the top all the way down so that they can interact and really push forward the mission of tandem well you know all of us watched these focus panels and saw the videos of it so we could see the patients and connect ourselves to what you were suffering from and we continue to do that today in our clinical trials our engineers are out in our clinical trials setting up sites meeting with people uh jeff cruzy who is one of our first engineers in software actually ran our ski camps for kids. One of the things that we wanted to test was the extremity of exercise, bad diets, and children's biology, right? So when you go skiing, you know, you, you want to drink a big Coke and have a, have a burger, and you're out there skiing and jumping and snowboarding. And so Jeff got connected, you know, really intimately with these kids. And so that's just the way we operate. You can't be disconnected. You know, this is a personal disease. We need to be in front of you. We were from the beginning through this, this market research and focus panels, and we continue it today. In fact, every Friday, we have something called the uh, Friday Random Community Update, and it's all the blogs and all the social media from our patients who, like you, are out there posting on social media, and we cut it, paste it, and we make all the company, uh, don't make them, but all the company reads it every Friday. Really? Yeah. That's so if you broke if you posted on social media, I probably read about it. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, uh, but but we'll I'm post. actually working on that post um, because because your company really does embody why I got interested in entrepreneurship to begin with, which was going back to actually affecting real change in people's lives um, through the use of, of a startup company. Um, and I, what I find also to be very interesting about Tandem even at the size it's been able to grow to today, is when I call Tandem, I get on the phone with someone almost right away. And, you know, in my eight years at Medtronic, it took me on average about 95 minutes to get on the phone with someone. Mm -hmm. Every time. And I just stopped doing it. I just lost care. How are you able to maintain that level of customer service? 
Well, internal metrics that we all look at, we actually look at um, wait times and drop times. So if you have a long wait, then you have high drop, drop time, drop incident. And so with the launch of Control IQ that you just got, got on, I, I think we had 12, 15,000 people update all at once that overwhelmed us. Wow. And we had disappointing response times. And we, had, we opened a facility out in Boise uh, to do our, our calls, to expand our call system. And they were going through growing pains. And we just we focused on that and tried to get that resolved as quickly as we can. And we're back to our normal call and wait times. And so we look at it. We're disappointed in ourselves if you have to wait. Absolutely. And especially in a situation where sometimes, like, you really need to get a hold of someone and you need it fast for that kind of immediate help. Yep. And that, that sort, was sort of an ancillary thing that came out of our market research is they said, we love your product, but you better have the service levels of a Medtronic. And we said, wait a minute, if we beat the service levels of Medtronic, we're going to win on another dimension. They set the bar low and we beat it. And so we win on both fronts. That's fantastic. Um, I want to get a little bit back to uh, to tandem and and your customer discovery process. Where, what did you what what were things that changed when you set out with customer discovery? Like markets you identified or problems you identified that, that you didn't plan for and anticipate, and then vice versa, things that you thought would be a big problem that actually didn't matter. I'll give you a couple of them. Okay. Pre-filled in, pre-filled insulin, you know, uh, cartridges was you know, alleged to be a huge need, you know, because all oh, you got to fill your cartridge and blah, blah, blah. Well, we tested that idea and it was about number 25 on the list of things people wanted. Oh, really? Surprisingly, we, we started out with prototypes thinking that people wanted to glue their pump on like the uh, Omnipod, you know, the pod. Right. And so we went out and tested that and we found that people that were on a durable pump didn't want that because they wanted to be able to detach their catheter. And when you have a pump, glued on you can't detach it and there are times where you wanted to be detached so that surprised us and so we went to the durable pump sort of route and you know we tried prototypes and this and that and they all sort of failed and one fellow remember the old uh, Motorola razor phone little slim yeah. thing? he pulled it out of his pocket and he said make it the size of this and so we measured it with calipers and so forth that became the dimensions of T-Slim so they wanted a slim pump. I mean, it was surprising. And then as, you know, this was back in 2007, eight, nine, and then the, the iPhone came out and we thought Apple was nuts. And then suddenly iPhones started appearing in these focus panels that were like, and the people said, well, make it the size of the Razor phone, but put a touch screen on it. And then we're like, holy moly, how do we get a battery in here? You know, what's the pumping technology that has to be embedded within that frame? Yeah. You know, how do we get the screen live, blah, blah, blah. And that became our essential discoveries and the ideas that we had. We had to discard because they just didn't rank in the top 25 of what people really needed. So you kind of have this, this, uh, these, these two different interests coming together where on one end, on the back end, you've got these engineers who really want to push this new technology and push this new uh, closed loop system. And the other end, you have diabetics who, are, who just want to more attractive pump who wanted something smaller to put in their pocket. How are you able to 
to merge those two different desires so that you create something that's not only technologically way ahead of its time, but cosmetically somewhat beautiful, some might say. Yeah, that, that was the whole idea. They, folks wanted to look like a consumer Apple-like experience. So it's sort of like um, you're packing for a cruise, but you can only bring a suitcase so big. Right. How do we get everything in that suitcase? And so the original technology wouldn't fit in the suitcase, the form factor that was defined by the, the razor phone with the touchscreen. And so we started scrambling to find a way to be able to get that pumping technology into that form factor with all the parts. So we had to loan, uh, load into that form factor. There was a screen, there's a board, there's a battery, and then there has to be pumping. And so that's what drove the development process. Everything that had been done before sort of got jettisoned. We moved in another direction. Do you think it was it was hard? Because I, I think, I mean, I, I know just particularly, I'm, I'm super invested in diabetes, so I, I stay uh, very on top of these kinds of advancements. But for, for the average diabetic that you've interacted with, is there a big hurdle in, in allowing them to understand what Control IQ does? Um, you know, I think one of the things that is most interesting, only about uh, a third of type ones are even on a pump because they don't want to go to the time and the effort to learn what you learned and were motivated to learn. So we've sort of found this motivational bell curve that was out there. And so the idea was how to get more people on a pump by bringing them into something they don't even have to care about how it works, just put it on and it works. So it changes the whole mentality of of being a type one, you, you don't need a book. I'm, I don't know whether you've read this book, Pumping Insulin, it's about that thick and it puts you to sleep. We wanted to eliminate even having to buy that book. And so that's the direction we're going. And so more people who don't have your motivation can plug and play and get going. So yeah, so the, the idea of, of almost giving people something that's so well wrapped, they don't even realize what, what they've got their hands on. Absolutely. Like you, all they worry about is, am I in control at night and during the day? Am I sleeping good? You solve my problem. I can get on with life. And that, that's the last part. I can get on with life. That's, that's what every, every type one wants to hear. Um, you, are you having more fun lately? I honestly, I mean, yeah, we're quarantined, so that part's not great. Uh, but it's, it's weird. It's like, you know, you spend your whole life. I spent my whole life. I, I've always been somewhat obsessive with my care, but I never actually had great control um and then all of a sudden i do like snapping the fingers i have this whole new level of control and it's actually just affected how i feel in a general sense like my my um my sense of health has changed yeah there's a sense of well-being you can rely on it now you don't have to worry about it the mental burden is gone and it's gone around the clock i mean you probably know the times of day and night that you were worrying about this stuff you know, you probably know about dawn effect, right? When you go low in the morning, you don't have that anymore, do you? No. And, and, uh, and like, like you were saying in something I read, it's like, it's such a critical period of time when you wake up with diabetes. How you wake up is, is often going to dictate your levels for the rest of the day. It, it, it does. And what's interesting about that is, you know, you calculate your insulin dose, you wake up low and you just, ingest any glucose you can get into you that's not dosing you're overdosing glucose now you're, you're going high again and your day is shot 
And that's something that has happened to me so many times I can't even I can't even count. Um, <laughs> but it's it's different now. Um, a lot different now. You know, I'll tell you another funny little thing. People, you know, with type one carry around this little bag, their their little diabetes bag, and they carry around juice boxes or candy bars and things like that. People tell me that they don't carry around juice boxes anymore or candy bars because they don't need it. And one of the things that we discovered is that, you know, girls with type one who exercise actually have to eat candy bars to recover because they go low during exercise. Yeah. So they have something that I call insulin belly. It's like a, you know, a beer belly. And we've seen the insulin bellies on these girls go away. And it's specific to women. Is it specific to women? Some men have it too. We have a guy who was an ex NFL football player, always had a beer gut, although he didn't drink beer, his gut went away. It's because when you get out of control, you have so much glucose, then you got insulin and then you store it. Right. And what people don't realize is insulin is actually it's an anabolic steroid. So yeah. It forces your body to either produce muscle or fat or store fat. Yeah. And it's storing fat. And when you're going through those those periods of control and using a lot of insulin to get your glucose down, that's not going out through waste. That's going into the fat. Right. And and that becomes a, a real problem even for me is, you know, it's like when when you, you know, it's diabetes has to prepare for everything ahead of time. Yeah. Everything. And you're really reducing a lot of that need for preparation. Which is such yep. going to allow people to have so much more flexibility in how they live their life. Oh, absolutely. You know, you to go out, you had to prepare with enough strips to validate your sensor. If you had a sensor, you had to have lances, you had to have alcohol, you had to have band-aids, you had to have your glucose source, you had to have your insulin back up if your pump went down. Absolutely. And so you don't have to think about all that stuff now. I, you know, I put for the first time in 12 years, I put my glucometer and my, you know, finger pricker in, in the desk and I left the house and it was like insane. It was just an insane feeling. Um, but, but that's also an interesting, an interesting outlook for tandem is not just affecting the average diabetes consumer, but people who are, who are really pushing the bounds of what you, you can do with diabetes. You know, looking at people, you know, who were in the NFL, who are obsessive um, athletes, and and taking that level of control to a whole other level. Well, yeah, you know, there's so many stories. Um, oh, there's a NFL, no, sorry, NBA player by the name of Dudley. Last name was Dudley. He was a type one. We know him. We talked to him. You know, he'd take his pump off, and he had to be benched to check his uh, blood sugar level. And you see that, you know, kids can't play football because contact sport, got to take your pump off. Suddenly you go low, you pass out. But now, you know, we're developing something called T-Sport, and it's called T-Sport for a reason. It is, we take the screen off the the pump that's on your phone, and you can actually wear it against your body with neoprene or something like that, a little pocket, and you can play contact sports with it. And your coach could be watching your app on your phone and seeing your control. And if you, and you shouldn't be getting out of control because it's going to have control IQ on it. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I'll never forget uh, when I was diagnosed and about a year after I got my first insulin pump. And I was a hockey player at the time. 
and I was trying to manufacture my own little mechanism or pocket that I could put it in my girdle and not have the pump get broken if I got checked or whatever happened. It was a nightmare. Um, not to mention, I had to make sure my blood sugar was fine during the game to begin with. Yeah. You know, you're eliminating the problem on both fronts, it seems. Yeah, yeah, we're trying to. You know, it, it's an active lifestyle kind of a pump that you can conceal and protect. And again, it's going to be operated by, actually it operates itself, but your cell phone observes what's going on. So it's a closed loop on your body, sensor to pump with the logic on the pump and the observation screen on your phone. So, and to your mom, you know, she can watch you playing hockey and she can watch your blood sugar and it shouldn't go up. She shouldn't go out of control because you got control IQ, but she'll feel better that she's watching you and you're okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, uh, have not had my mom on my, my blood sugar in, in a little while. So <laughs> don't no, I, know, I know that, but at one time, <laughs> um, another thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, how you enter. I mean, I would, I would consider you guys disruptive tech, yeah. at, at least med tech. And, um, you know, you combine your disruptive tech with, all of the bureaucratic impositions that the FDA impose and, and other government agencies impose, how, how are you able to like properly, um, properly gauge, you know, how fast we can move on either front? Well, you know, one of the things we did is we uh, developed a program management function so that the engineers have op observers who put together the timeline, manage the tasks, uh, manage the teams and the teams are composed of the regulatory, the development and all the different aspects, the customer service people who need to be in on the project. And so by using tools like we're using today and getting it on the centralized CRM, which is a customer resource management system or our own pro program management system, we can have every, every eye from every function from regulatory to development development, manufacturing, looking at the same thing at the same time, addressing the problems up front, and it speeds the development process. Now, one of the things that's happened at the FDA is we've gone to totally electronic filings. We used to have to make up three copies of 20 books of documents, send it, you know, via the mail, and have it, have it handed out to reviewers at the FDA. Today, we send a file, they email it out to the reviewers, electronically we get responses rather than waiting for the mail so this technology we're all using has you know accelerated our development do you think that um or how would you characterize that relationship has it changed your relationship with the fda do you think they're more uh willing to push for disruptive tech now than they were at the beginning yeah you know we we had a change in the um in the team that reviews our products probably two three years ago they were far more comfortable that we can go to more electronic, digital-based, you know, filings and products where software is downloaded remotely if we could show, you know, risk mitigation. And so it has really sped development. You know, they knew the clinical data uh, from Control IQ and were seeing the results, and that sped their desire to get that out into, into the general use with patients. And so suddenly we're all rowing in the same direction. So you, you've been able to kind of um, to find what really 
makes them tick and what makes them say yes? Oh yeah, they, they, they tell us, we meet with them. Uh, in fact, we were at an investment conference and our reviewer was up with our CEO talking about how we were working together to get speed innovation, you know, in diabetes. And so, you know, 10 years ago, you think you can get somebody from the FDA to come and meet you in a public forum? No. <laughs> Today? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're rewarded for it now. You know, they're now the good guy. They're not the delayer of new technology and access, but they're speeding along. If it works, if it's safe, if it's effective, they want to get it out. Absolutely. And that's, that's another thing that's just interesting about running, you know, med tech company is that you've got so many differences between a normal company. You've got differences in terms of your access to market for the FDA. You've got differences in terms of how you guys collect revenue because of, you know, all the different healthcare insurance systems that are being used. And then you also have just differences in, in sort of the shareholder mentality. Um, how are you able to reconcile uh, the mission of Tandem with the, the need to be a, a profitable, successful business? Well, you know, it, it, we're a highly regulated industry. You know, when you're private, you have the FDA. Um, you have to have good manufacturing practices. You have to have inspections, all that sort of thing. You have to do it. You have to do it right. And so you need to staff. You need to have the IT systems to do all that. So it's, it's just part of the world that you live in. And if you try to cut corners on compliance, you're going to get in trouble. You know, you're going to have a recall. You're going to have, um, you know, surveillance. that's going to get you shut down. It's a risk you want to mitigate because, you know, if you look at our public filings, one of the risk factors is regulatory risk. And so how do I take that risk and make it as low as I can for the benefit of shareholders? So it's one of our responsibilities you know, to our shareholders to manage that risk. And it's just the environment that we, we work in in med tech. You know, we're highly regulated. Once we get to be public, we have the SEC looking at us. We have our practices and marketing, the Sunshine Act, right. you know, which basically anti-kickback, anti-influence to, to prescribers and caregivers. So you have to build those into your system. And, you know, the message to everybody is you have to comply. We have to train you in this. If you break the rules, you get us in trouble, and then you're in trouble. So it's just part of the environment. you got to deal with it, manage it head, you know, head on. And in reality, it's going to keep you out of trouble. So do you think that that, that is that sort of unique to you as the kind of leader you are? Do you feel like you're able to, um, to really like have good risk assessment and good risk management? No, I don't think it's unique to me. I, I think there are a lot of us like that. Um, unfortunately, there's some that cut corners. I mean, if you look at what Purdue Pharma did with OxyContin, you know, if you go back, the whole OxyContin mess is because they had some data that says at five days, people weren't addicted. Well, they got addicted on day six through 10. And so it was overprescribed. It was very addictive. Sales, uh, salespeople were, you know, saying things that weren't true. Physicians were misinformed and putting them, their patients onto a very addictive uh, drug, and then we have the OxyContin mess that we have. You can't do that. I mean, you can't market off-label. You can't make claims that aren't true. And uh, that's not unique to me, but it's something other people don't comply with, and then you get disasters like that. Right. It's, it's, it's the 
you know, the honesty and the integrity are so important in, in the medical industry. Well, you know, your life is at risk and we take that very, very seriously. We would put your life at risk. Absolutely. Does that, does that ever fear you? Just knowing, knowing how instrumental your product is in actually managing someone's health. Like, well, from, from the beginning, it gave us a heightened standard of compliance. And then there's something called the MDR. If you had an adverse event, it's called a um, medical device report. You file that with the FDA. We have to uh, investigate it and figure out, was it you? Was it something else? Was it us? And then we got to fix it. And we don't like MDRs, and we don't like adverse events, and we look at it, another metric that we monitor. The FDA doesn't like that either. That's what causes recall. So you build, you build your system to minimize that risk, and then I think you're okay. So now looking, um, you know, you just recently stepped down as CEO. Um, where, where are things going with Tandem? What's Tandem looking at? right now sort of um, in the near horizon, maybe even future horizon? Well, you know, we, we've had a five, 10 year plan that we continue to update and develop as new ideas and new technologies come into, you know, being relevant in our portfolio. You know, it was important to me that we, you know, I'm getting older, um, succession planning is one of the things that, you know, the board and I have to do. And so I brought in John Sheridan, who I'd known in the industry, and I knew in two or three years, he'd be ready to be CEO when I was getting older and people start looking at the retirement age thing and that sort of thing. So he's done a superb job. Uh, he emerged into the public life. He was like our chief operating officer, but he started to meet with investors at our first investor day. He was extremely uh, well received by the investment community, had high confidence. And it was just time for me to sort of step into the chairman role and not be an active employee any longer and let him run the, run the show. So the plan that we're all working on is well-defined. Uh, we continue to refine it. As I said, new technologies come in and be relevant. Um, and we're operating to that plan. So that so <clears throat> actually lends well um, to the next thing I was going to ask about. You know, we've talked a lot about tandem now and uh, and you know my experience and other diabetics experience with it but just looking at the company as a startup I mean you joined in early you said you joined in the seed stage and you saw it through all the way through IPO to where it is now um, how are you able to lead a company and and focus and dedicate all this time and research to developing the T-Slim pump while still um, focusing on all the things that an entrepreneur is burdened with like you know fundraising and, and, um, and pitching and all the various uh, responsibilities? Well, you know, it, it's just a part of the total job. I mean, the, you know, I was involved in details of team meetings and, and uh, you know, things like regulatory filings and that sort of thing. But it, it, it gave me confidence to inform me so that I could represent two investors where we were. And so being deeply involved and then talking to investors gave me the confidence. So they have the confidence to invest in us. And um, it's just part of, you have to manage, you know, inwardly and you have to manage outwardly, but being, you know, informed and connected within the company so that you don't have surprises, you, you know, find out some shocking thing that didn't work that you're telling everybody does. So 
it's just part of what you have to do as a you know CEO of a startup uh, startup company. Absolutely. Um, what would you say to our listeners who are thinking about starting a company right now, um, whether it's medtech or not? I know you emphasize customer discovery, but are there any just sort of key pieces of advice that you think would be uh, helpful to a student entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, w- one of the things, I don't care what category you're in, you've got to understand what your total available market is. Do you have some data that will explain to an investor, yeah, there's you know a million people with this problem, this is the product, this is the revenue model, this is what we can actually develop if the market doesn't exist, this is how we could change a market and expand it. So that total you know available market discovery and then validation through like you call it you know uh, customer discovery right. connects what your business model is going to be to the reality of the problem that people have. So many people go into these things and they say, I have this great idea. My uncle really thinks this is a great idea, but how many people are like your uncle? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I know they got to figure that one out. So, um, I mean, as far as candor goes, I mean, the, the diabetes market is probably more easy to figure out the, the size of that market than it would be for a more general market like food or, or um, um, the entertainment industry. You're absolutely right. Because, you know, we have surrogates. For instance, Eli Lilly knows how many people use their insulin. That's a pretty good surrogate for, okay, what fraction of those are using pumps? There was good, reliable data. There were surveys. There are, were external surveys we can, um, you know, uh, point to. But that's what I mean about validating your total available market. If it's diffuse, like a consumer product, eh, it's a little bit more difficult to convince investors. But if you have a very discrete, definable market that you have surrogates for, uh, you have comparables is a big term we use. What are comparable companies? What what is what does their data say? You know, you get a better definable market, and it gives uh, investors greater confidence that they're investing in something that's real. So going off of that. Um surrogate point and using other companies to help substantiate your company's model and vision. Um, I think the relationship between Dexcom, the company that Tandem uses for its uh, analytics and continuous glucose monitoring, and Tandem is a really, really excellent example of startup augmentation. Yeah, actually, you're, you're right on point. You know, we're both public companies, analysts, cover us and sort of the retail investors have said as Dexcom goes so goes Tandem so we're vitally linked together because you know your product that you're using is a combination of the two companies and so yeah that's another way you can actually sort of predict how we'll do they're a leading indicator how are you able to um, foster that relationship between the two companies well, you know, as, as things emerged, uh, about the time I left their board, they were really focusing on linking up to insulin pumps because they could see maybe someday they would drive an algorithm that would do the dosing. Uh, sort of before they thought, okay, this is going to be great for type ones and then type twos, better than finger sticks, not so invasive and that sort of thing. So the link up with pumps became a bigger part of their strategy. And therefore, we, we became more important to them. So we work, you know, with them 
um, their regulatory people really helped us as we moved from a you know less regulated product to more regulated like they were with PMAs. So it's been a good partnership. We've learned from each other and strategically we have a great overlap. You guys are both down in San Diego too, right? Yep, we sure are. We sure are. So it's easy to drive over and talk to them. Yeah. And and was there was there any um how how did how did that fusion affect the culture of each company, you think? Or did it? Well, you know, as we started thinking about automated insulin delivery, you know, it changed our whole product thinking. You know, before we had a standalone device that was easy for you to use, then suddenly a major strategy became, well, geez, how do we take you out of it and give you automated insulin delivery? So, boom, we got a lot closer together when we started doing that. Absolutely. And now you, you created this, uh, I would say that the, the names are, are um, more often paired now than not. Yeah, because, you know, if you want control IQ, you got to be on Dexcom then to link it up to the T-SLIM so that you're running that algorithm. So our reps in the field work together. Our educators work together. Um, we take uh, product complaints where we're linked up with the Dexcom and manage those with Dexcom. So with their quality and regulatory um, groups, we're, you know, we're, we're linked up. Um, supply chain overlap is out there. So, you know, we're pretty close where people are using Dexcom paired with our pump. And it's, it's been uh, an immense success so far, at least on the consumer front. Well, yeah, it and is. Well, you guys and report earnings uh, yesterday, right? Yeah, we had our earnings yesterday, yeah. Really and, well. in, yeah, in the first quarter, we were unaffected. You know, everybody is sort of pulling guidance for the year um, because it's hard to tell how Q3 and Q4 are going to, you know, sort of roll out. Traditionally, uh, Q4 is our biggest part of the year, biggest quarter, because you come up on your, you know, your deductibles are now over. Everything's almost 100% paid. People tend to buy in the fourth quarter. We think that's still going to be there. The biggest question is, what is April and May like? And, uh, you know, we haven't given real guidance on it. But, you know, so we try to set a floor on our guidance. And we did outline scenarios in which we might meet our, you know, previous guidance for the year. Uh, but we're just watching it, you know, like everyone else is. I don't, I don't, diabetes is not an electable condition, as you know. <laughs> in the height of the coronavirus, you got on and self-trained, so. Uh, yeah, and I, uh, I doubt anyone would elect to have it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would pick it either. Yeah. Um, well, Kim, thank you so much. Are there any closing notes you have you want to share with everyone? No, I think what you're doing is great. And, uh, you know, you're a very motivated young guy. These are interesting things that, you know, at your age, I wasn't asking questions about. So I really have to admire what you're doing. Thank you so much. Dude.